So we all love a good story, don't we? Don't you like a good story? We love, we love books where the plot is real and the action is intense. Everything wraps up nicely in the end. We love it when a movie is over and the good guys have won and the bad guys lost badly and even completely destroyed is the best ending we like. We love it when that person climbs the mountain and they get caught in the snowstorm and the helicopter rescues them right at the last minute. Or the person lost at sea is found. We love it when the girl gets the guy, the guy gets the girl, and lives happily ever after. We love a good story. Not only in a movie or a book, but we love a good story in our life. These are the stories we love to tell, man. We love to tell the story about the husband who in a, a weak moment left his family, but then came to his senses and came back home. Those are the testimonies that we like to hear. Those are the testimonies we tell. We praise God when the doctor says, you know what? We, we've run the test again and we can't, we can't find any cancer. Those are the stories we love. We always love this story. The guy who loses his job on Friday, right? And by Monday, already landed another job that's better and bigger and the dream job Plus, he got all the severance package from the other one. He, he got way ahead on the deal. Those are the stories we love to tell. This past weekend, the Steeler Nation took a big gulp and rooted for the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> Mainly because they were playing the New England Patriots. Although I know there are some who had much better reason to meet to, 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 uh, to uh, root for the Eagles. And after the game, all kinds of stories. The Eagles have tremendous, a huge group of believers on their team. Genuine, strong Christians. And all kinds of stories came out. Even Doug Peterson, the Eagles coach, said when he was accepting the Lombardi Trophy, I want to I thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First thing he said. And Christians were all over that. And it was cool. Stories were written. Here's my question. Have you ever heard a losing coach say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for this loss today. I'm still searching for the faith stories about the players on the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> I mean, is God still good when you're 0 and 16? Is God still good when you're 0 and 16? Is God good when the husband or father doesn't come back home? Is God good when you've been begging for a relationship and he doesn't seem to be providing it? Is God good when the cancer isn't eliminated? Is God good when the better job never comes. Is God still good when poverty of the past continues in your present with seemingly no relief for the future? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. Those are some of the questions 
we're going to be dealing with in the book of Job. It's an easy book to find. Just uh, open your Bible to the middle, and you'll be in the book of Psalms, and then go one book back, and you're in the book of Job. Many believe that the book of Job is about suffering, and certainly it has a lot of suffering in it. You'll hear people say, boy, I am having a Job experience, or I feel like Job going through this. Job's about suffering for sure. And some people say Job's is about, is about perseverance. You've heard the phrase, right? That person has the patience of Job. And certainly, Job persevered through some difficult things, but patience and pain in, are not what this book's about. Any Christian who reads the book of Job trying to find answers for the reasons of things going on in their life, their trials and their sorrows, you're probably going to end up more confused than comforted. The thrust of Job can be summed up in these questions. Can I believe God when life doesn't make sense? Can I trust God when I can't explain Him? Why should I serve God? And really the book of Job can be summed up with this three-word question, is God enough? Is He? Is God enough? Let's work through the book of Job. We're going to look at the first three chapters today. It's an interesting book. There are 42 chapters. We're going to spend eight weeks in it. We're going to take big chunks uh, of it as we go through. And the book starts with this introduction of Job, which we're going to look at today. Starts then, moves to uh, a, a council of heaven, which we'll see today. Then moves to the city dump. Most of the book takes place at the city dump. And then there's the booming voice of God at the end that doesn't answer one question, but just reminds us who he is. So let's start with some introductions. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Uh, I don't have a map up here right now, but I still don't have a map up here right now. I do have a map there, but I don't have a map here. So that's confusing to you. Welcome to the book of Job. Uh, we're going to go through this thing, all right? <laughs> you can see the map up there. I can't draw on it. But if you define Saudi Arabia, Uz is kind of in the northern, northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. Now that's cool because Israel was at the Old Testament. All, most of it takes place in Israel, right? Talking about the children of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the, the patriarchs. But now we see that the message of God has, has gone further than Israel. It's gone out to the east. It's gone into Saudi Arabia. So here's this man named Job in the land of Uz. And we get four descriptions of Job. He was a man who was blameless, upright, one who feared God, and turned away from evil. He was blameless, absent from observable sinful acts. It does not mean he was perfect 
No human being has ever been perfect. Job had his issues. We're going to see this. But it just means as you looked at his life, you saw honesty. You saw marital faithfulness. You saw treatment of people who worked with him justly. You you saw generosity uh, given to the poor. You you saw the avoidance of adultery. He wasn't perfect, but he was morally whole, a man of integrity. He was upright. That word basically just just, um, bolsters the word blameless. Uh, The word upright means that uh, he was straight. He didn't deviate from God's standard. He feared God. Again, he he didn't fear God as in a cowering uh, terror, but he respected God. He had a reverence for God. In fact, he respected God to the point that he obeyed God. That's what real fear of God is. You revere him to the point that you obey him. And then he turned away from evil. Again, just, just driving down who this man was. He didn't just do what was right, but he was intentional about avoiding what was wrong. So, so, so the basis of Job, his moral character, he's blameless, he's upright, he's honor God, and he rejected evil. And he was blessed. Job had a wife and, and ten children, three sons, uh, or, or seven sons and three daughters. And it's interesting, in that time... Um, uh, wealth was uh, demonstrated by how many children you had, how, many, how much livestock you had, and how much land you had. And so we got 10 children, big family, and uh, look at uh, verse 2, uh, seven sons, three daughters. He, verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. There was no one like him. Out of the the land of Israel, out of the patriarchs, here was the greatest man in the east. No one like Job. And it even gets better. All his kids got along. Imagine that. (laughs) Ten kids... And they got along well. In fact, the next verses say that when they had their special day, we think that's their birthday, they would have a birthday at home, and then all the kids would come, and they would have a great time. Family reunion several times a year. They would eat and drink and talk and just have a great time. And Job, in that day, represented, he was kind of the priest of the family, just like Abraham was the priest of his family. That's why we think it was written about the same time or Job lived about the same time as Abraham. And Job would sacrifice an animal just in case the children had sinned. Look at, uh, look at the middle of verse 5. Job would send and consecrate them, the number of them all, every one of his kids. For Job said, it may be, I'm not sure, I don't know, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts so I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to, I'm going to make an atonement for their sin. This, thus, uh, this, thus Job did continually. He kept doing it. So that's who he is. He's a man of integrity. He, he's a man of wisdom. He's a man of knowledge. He's a man of influence. And he functioned as a priest of his family. Now the book moves to um, uh, Council of Heaven. We don't know who wrote the book. But we know this would have been direct revelation from God because no one would have been there to see this except for God himself. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, that would be angels, the good angels, 
They came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. That's interesting. We'll come back to that in a second. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come from? And, the, and, and Satan answered the Lord, from, from going to and fro uh, the earth and walking up and down it. Satan's basically saying kind of an indirect answer to God, nowhere in particular and everywhere in general. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears me. He turns from evil. No, no one like him. Satan said in verse 9, Does Job fear you for no reason? Come on, God, get real. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house, all he has on every side? We'll come back to that in a second. Let's think about this council going on. There is in heaven council. We assume that it would be going on maybe right now. Where the sons of God, the angels, come. And we see a few things about the council. First, we see that God is sovereign. He's on the throne. That's going to be a theme that goes throughout Job. God is in control. We also see that Satan has access to the to the th- this council. Satan is not in hell. He roams the earth. Jesus, in John 12, 14, and 16, called Satan the prince of this world. He has a lot of freedom to do uh, destruction. Paul called him the, 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 the prince of the power of the air. Peter said, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is out to get us. And the third thing we see here is Satan continually makes accusations against believers. Not just Job, but you and me. We see that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is when Satan has been thrown down. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers, that's generic, brothers and sisters, has been thrown down. The accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. So think about it. Satan is right now accusing us before God. Just like he did Job. And he will until Revelation chapter 10, or Revelation 12, verse 10. So notice what he says. Have you, um, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased his, his land. I mean, who wouldn't serve you? See, serving you, God, is pro quo. I, 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 I serve you, and then I get something back. Worship is like a coin, right? I put it in, and I get this heavenly reward. Would Satan saying, would anyone serve you if he didn't enjoy the, the, these personal gains? The only reason you, Job serves you, the only reason you can say, hey, if you considered Job this man of integrity, the only reason he serves you is because you pay him to do it. He'd be crazy not to. 
Anyone would be crazy not to with all the blessings you've given Job. You see, God, people serve you because you pay them. People serve you because you reward them. They honor you for their rewards. The real issue is you take away those blessings, you are not enough. God, you are not enough on your own. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Again, God's in control. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord. The, the, the mood of Satan went out in the presence of the Lord is he like bolted out of there. He couldn't wait to go do his damage. And he did his damage. The first incident took place probably in the fall. Summer was over and the ground was... Uh, uh, softened by the rains and so they were plowing in the fields and a, a group of uh, Sabaeans came from the south and stole a thousand oxen, 500 donkeys, slaughtered the servants. Again, a lot, a lot of, of wealth there. Just stole it. A servant escaped to go tell Job while he was telling Job. Job got the second message that lightning had struck and, and destroyed. How many sheep did he have? Uh, 7,000 sheep. Lightning had struck and just created a fire. 7,000 sheep that were gone while he was hearing that story. A great, the, the Chaldeans came down from the north and destroyed all the camels. And while he was hearing that story, the worst news came. All the kids were together having a great time. And uh, a storm hit, maybe a tornado hit and, and destroyed the house they were in and the house collapsed on them and, and all of his children were killed. Job lost it all. His children, his wealth, his standing, his security. Check out his, his first response, his amazing response. Then Job arose and he tore his robe. Tearing his robe would be to, to just enter turmoil, hear him screaming, hear the groans. He tears his robe, a shock and grief. He shaves his head, a sign of humility, and then he worshiped. But don't think he's singing praise songs. This is pain-laden worship. He fell on the ground and he surrendered to God. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Didn't have a thing when I got here. And naked I'm going to return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. It's an amazing response, isn't it? Every time I read this, I'll never forget standing at a cemetery over in uh, Bethel Park, South Hills, and uh, a baby had died, and I was waiting on top of the hills, windy and cold, and uh, the mom and the dad, the dad was carrying the sole pallbearer of this little baby's casket as we were going to bury that baby. As we started the service, the dad 
read this verse. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing response. The story of Job's just getting started. There was a second exchange in heaven at this council. Look at chapter 2. There was a day when the sons of God, again the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also there to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth. And he goes through again. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears me. He turns from evil. And, and he adds this. He still holds to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan said, you know what? I misread Job. He's more selfish and sinful than I thought. Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life, but you stretch out your hand and you touch his bone and flesh and he'll curse you to his face. He's a selfish man. I took away all his stuff. He didn't, he didn't even act like he cared. He still worshiped you, but you touch his body. You go against him, skin for skin. And again, God in control said, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So verse 7, Satan went out of the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. He running sores. He wanted to make sure the infection didn't go all over his body, so he scrapes off, off the infection, and he sits among the ashes. In humility, he has, to, he has to leave home. He's humiliated. He has to withdraw because he's a diseased man. And he goes and sits among the ashes. The ashes would be the place where they burn the trash, the garbage. That's where he finds a piece of broken pottery. He's sitting at the city dump. Through the rest of the book, we, we, we get an idea of, of, of the pain that Job went through. Let me just run through this quickly we'll see this as we go through there's also sores itching changing the facial skin a lot of people think it was elephantitis or some form of elephantitis because of the changing of the of the skin loss of appetite depression loss of strength worms in the boils running sores difficulty in breathing loss of weight continual pain restlessness blackened skin peeling skin and fever. He was in such a difficult situation that his wife, seeing all this, said, Job, just curse God and die. Look at verse 9. His wife said, do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Notice Job didn't say you are a foolish woman. He said you're speaking like one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. By the way, don't be hard on Job's wife. She just lost 10 children. She's looking at her husband who she can't even recognize. 
she is in desperate grief. And Job says, you're not a foolish woman, but your grief is so bad. You're in such pain, speaking like one. God's given us good things, and if we're going to praise him when it's good, we also have to praise him when we're 0 and 16. We have to praise him when we're not winning. When the word of Job's sickness got around, remember he was one of the most influential men in all the East. He had a lot of friends. And uh, when the word got around, three friends came. We're going to be looking at the interaction with these three friends over the next weeks. But they came, and uh, one of them came from at least 100 miles away. And they came, and it's interesting, it says they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices. Listen to their listen to their their emotion, they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward the heavens and they sat with him on the ground in the city dump for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was great. We'll come back to them in just a second. After seven days, Job speaks and in chapter 3, we hear, we, hear his, we hear his heart. First, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he just said, I wish I'd never been born. This pain, this physical pain and emotional pain, I just wish I hadn't been born. Let the, let the day perish, yeah, verse 3, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man conceived... Wipe it off the calendar. Make it like February the 30th. Get it off the calendar. But, he said, since I was born, in verses 11 through 19, he said, I wish I had been stillborn. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and, and expire? Verse 16, or why was I not as hidden as a hidden stillborn, as infants who never see the light. Verse 20 through 26, he said, you know what? I wish I could die. Now, I want to make clear, Job never contemplates suicide. But he's in such pain, he says, I just wish this was over. Why is the light given to him who is in misery? This is verse 20. And life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but it comes not. And he digs for death more than hidden treasures. Look at verse 25. This is an interesting one. For the thing that I fear comes up on me and what I dread befalls me. We see a little part of Job's heart. I've always feared losing my kids. Anyone ever have that fear? I've always dreaded something like that. I've always feared getting sick. Job said, the thing that I feared has come upon me. The thing that I dread befalls me. And in these verses, Job starts asking why. He's not sinning. He starts asking why. Why did I not die at birth? Why did the knees receive me? 
Why was I not stillborn? Verse 16. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who has misery and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? God has me. God is constricting me. God has me hedged in. So Job goes from falling down and worshiping, blessed be the name of God, to his interaction with his wife. God's given us all these things, and we're going to praise him when he gives it to us, and we're going to praise him when it's taken away. And also, real and raw, he's asking God, what are you doing here? What are you doing? We're going to stop there. And I want to make three comments. Some things we see in chapter 1 that we need to, need to keep in mind, and we'll keep reminding ourselves of it as we go through this book. The first one is this. The truth of Scripture from beginning to end is that God is sovereign. God is in control. And we have to accept that as a truth. Whatever happens on this earth and whatever happens in our lives takes place as the result of God's directive or his permission. God is sovereign. We know that Satan is active and he is alive and he seeks to destroy us, and he right now is accusing us before God, saying they're not serving you because they love you, they're serving you because of all the stuff you give them. But also we learn in this book, Satan's, Job's issue is never with Satan. Job's issue is always with God, because Job understands that truth. God, you are in control. You are the one calling the shots. Nothing happens unless you direct it or give permission to it. God is sovereign. We'll see that throughout the book. Also in these first three chapters, there's a great lesson here. This is, this is not the main theme of the book, but I'd, I'd, just like to, I'd just like to draw this one out. In the first three chapters, we see this great example of the ministry of presence. Job's three friends come. <clears throat> By the way, he had more than three friends, but only three came. And they get, they get sideways here in the next chapter. And they say some things they shouldn't say. But let's just freeze frame their coming, and they tear their clothes, and they weep aloud, and they sit with Job for seven days, not saying a word. Let's just, let's just keep it there. That's a tremendous example of the ministry of presence. It's always interesting that when people go through challenging times, a lot of good friends don't hang in there with them. Because, well, I just don't know what to say. I want to encourage you. I don't even know how to pray for them. See, that's okay. These friends just came and sat down with him in the gar- at the city dump. You don't have to have the, the perfect verse 
that fixes everything. When a person's going through suffering, no verse is going to fix everything. You don't have to have the right profound word that makes everything all right. You don't have it. You just need to go sit with them. Have a cup of coffee with them. Watch a movie in the afternoon with them when they're going through pain. Don't run from, your, from friends who are going through suffering just because you don't know what to say. You just have to be there. So if you have a friend in your life going through some challenging things and you've kind of distanced yourself, you need to get back with them. And you need to have a strong ministry of presence. The third thing we see here is, is, is life's challenges put us on an emotional roller coaster, don't they? We see that in the first three chapters of Job. He, he never cursed God. But he, he falls on his knees and he worships God. And in chapter three, he's saying, God, I still worship you. I still trust you. But man, it's tough. There's sometimes people go through suffering and I, I, I call it the sufferer's high. You ever experienced that? You got bad news? You, uh, you got bad news from the doctor. You got bad news in a relationship. You, and, and at the beginning, it's like, man, you're just, you just are washed over with the presence of God. And you're saying, and God, God has given me everything I need. You know, I'm going to make it. God's good all the time, and all the times God's good. Right? We like to say that. The sufferer's high. But then there are times when we get the sufferer's low. God, what are you doing? This is painful. I'm sad. I'm hurting. And I just want to say, that's okay. That's normal. That's natural. When you go through tough times, you're going to hit the highs and you're going to hit the lows. And we see that in Job. That's what's happening with Job. And that's okay. And when you cry out to God in your pain, I got to tell you, God can handle that. He can handle it. You can ask him every question. You can ask him every why. You can tell him, you're not getting this. You don't understand this. He can handle it. We see that in the Psalms, right? When David is going through all kinds of stuff. Psalm 13. God, have you forgotten me? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why am I trying to figure out how to fix this thing and you're nowhere to be found? Psalm 78 is the same thing. Psalm 22. Why, God, have you forsaken me? Jesus prayed that in, from the cross. I just want to remind you. You're going through tough times. You're not... You're not unspiritual. You're not ungodly. You've not lost your relationship with Christ when you are hurting and when you are questioning. In fact, in fact, that's when, that's when he does some, some good work. And he stretches you. And he brings you back. And he says, I'm with you. I know it's tough, but I'm with you. And when you find that God's all you have 
then you finally learn God's all you need, right? Hard to learn that when you got all the stuff around you. It's hard to learn that when you have 7,000 sheep and 500 donkeys and 3,000 camels. I don't know if I got all those numbers right, but it's hard to learn it when everything's going great, right? But then when that's taken away, when God's all you have, that's what we'll learn through Job. When God's all you have, God's all you need.